everybody sing with us now. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the Remember the heights from which you have fallen? Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and I will remove your candlestick from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To those who overcome, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church to him who overcomes I will give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God she who has a Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, we ask that you will give us ears that hear, that today we might hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In Jesus' name, amen. So last Sabbath, we introduced our theme for the fall series called Candles. Today, we begin to get down to the specifics. We're focusing on the book of Revelation, chapters 1 through 5, but we're going to be spending the bulk of our time in chapters 2 and 3 considering the seven churches of Revelation. Now, thank you, choir, for helping us with that song. That was very nicely done, and it's wonderful to have you back. So nice to have the choir again for another lovely season. And just a couple items to, to mention at this point. Now, our series is continuing on through the fall down to uh, a couple weeks before Thanksgiving, all except for next Sabbath, because next Sabbath is a very special event that Florida Hospital and AHS are sponsoring in celebration of 150 years of Adventist involvement in health ministries. And as a part of that, there's a special worship celebration planned for that day at Calvary Assembly uh, in Orlando, and it will take place at this time next Sabbath. So in recognition of that, we're not going to try to continue the series because we want to encourage you to be a part of that if you'd like to go. And remember, next Sabbath, we won't be having first service. That probably won't affect most of you, but we won't be having first service. We will have the bridge. We'll also have third service. Pastor Steve will be here, and he'll speak at third. Pastor Bernie will speak at the bridge. But then we'll get back on to uh, our theme the week following that. Now, if you're participating in a small group, we encourage you to get your groups back together, and we're putting together studies to go with each of these sermons. Maybe you'll realize this is going to throw our group schedule off slightly, but let me tell you what we're going to do. We've got the study ready for Smyrna, which we're actually not going to talk about until the 24th, but that one's ready, and you can take that one and use it in your small group this week, and then we'll write up another study for the extra week in there that's a focus on chapter one, so that you can keep your group going each week if you'd like, um, so we'll have some material for your group to meet and study on in that extra week in there. So look for that. It'll be on the website when those are ready. And just so you know, the, the study for the church in Smyrna now is available in the lobby. You can take a hard copy of that if you'd like on your way out or just find it on the church website. So, all right, so, so we're focused on these first five chapters in the book of Revelation. The Apocalypsis Jesu Christu. We talked about that last week. The revelation, is it of Jesus or the revelation from Jesus? Well, yeah, it's really both. It comes from him, and it's all about him. And in this revelation, in this vision from the very beginning, you get this overwhelming vision of Jesus. Now, I want to read to you again John's description of this overwhelming vision he sees. We're going to keep coming back to this week after week. Revelation chapter 1, verse 12, John writes, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair of his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like what? A blazing fire. 
His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held what? Seven stars. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said what? Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. All right, two things we talked about that we want to understand about these seven churches. Number one, they are literal, actual places whose situations are accurately described in this passage. But number two, they are also symbolic, representative of the churches in that time, but also representative of churches through all time down to our own day. So this is the key we're going to use each week in trying to understand and consider what the Spirit would say to us. First, we're going to seek to understand them as literal, filled with people like you and I, churches in that day. And then we're going to look for two things. One is symbolic lessons that we can understand conceptually. And the second is practical lessons that we can apply to our personal life and to our church life. Now, another thing we're going to do each week, and we did again this time, is we're going to sing this song, and it's going to change each week because the middle section is going to be relevant, specific to the church we're talking about. So we're going to sing this song, and then someone's going to come and recite the passage. And here's why we're doing this. If you'll remember, in the first chapter of Revelation, John writes, Blessed is the one who reads aloud these words, and blessed are those who hear. This book was specially written to be read aloud or recited aloud and to be listened to. That's why the words, he who has an ear, she who has an ear, let him hear. So we're going to claim that part of the blessing each week. And the one who gives the recitation is going to be blessed. And we who hear are going to be blessed listening to the voice of the Spirit to us. So we will do that at the beginning each time, and we'll sing that song. But let's get started today by talking in a very literal way. So first of all, I want you to see that these seven churches are actually seven towns that are located in and around the area of what we today would call the country of Turkey, or would call Asia Minor. Now, it's a little hard to see, but there's a dot off in the ocean there, and that's the island of Patmos. That's where John is. But you see on the land, there's seven dots. Those are the locations of the seven churches from the book of Revelation. You have Ephesus, above that Smyrna, further up Pergamon, then across Thyatira, then Sardis, Philadelphia, and finally Laodicea. So you could see, you could visit those in a simple loop if that was your desire to do. 
Now, of the seven churches, it is likely that John knew the people in these cities quite well. And of them all, Ephesus is the one closest to the Isle of Patmos where John was. Now, the city of Ephesus is very interesting, and if you go there today, you'll see the ruins of what's left of that city. This was the facade of a library in the city of Ephesus. I want you to understand what this city was like. This was a sophisticated city. And in fact, the the facade there is constructed, if you're an architect, maybe you'd appreciate it, it's actually not straight across the front. It actually bows out slightly, and the reason they did it that way is if you're standing in the avenue looking at it, it actually is an optical illusion. It makes the library look bigger than it actually was. The space was a little narrow, but they built it in a way so your eye saw it as bigger. You know, we're not the first generation of people that are clever and smart. And so here is this remarkable city with these remarkable things in it. Ephesus was the third largest city in the Roman province of Asia. Now, it was behind Sardis, which is one of the other churches we'll consider on a later day, and another city named Troas. There is disagreement between scholars as to exactly how big it was. Some say it was over 100,000. Others say no, probably more like 50,000. But either way... It was one of the largest cities in the region at the time. And there's a significant point here I want you to understand. The church became very prominent in this town through time. And I want you to understand, when you think about the Christian church in its early days, do you tend to think of these cities or do you tend to think of Jerusalem or a dusty Judean village? Do you tend to think, well, the church was, well, happened outside the cities in the hinterland? No. The place the Christian church took off and grew was in the Greek and Roman cities of what is now modern-day Turkey and Greece and Italy, and it would be in those metropolitan areas of sophistication that the Christian church would mushroom and take off. Only later did it grow to the hinterlands, to the lands around. It wouldn't be in the little towns. No, the church grew most prominently in the early days in the population centers, not on the edges. And that's a truth that ought to give us some pause, right? When we stop and think about where is it that we see Adventist churches? Are they in the population centers? Or do they tend to be on the edges where nobody really lives? There was a main avenue in the town. If you were standing on the stairs of the library and looking up, you would look down this avenue and you can imagine it in the day when the sides there had shops and all manner of amazing things on it. Now think about this. You're looking at this avenue. It's very likely that Paul and Apollos walked that very street right there. They knew those shops. And it's very likely that John himself walked up and down that street. And if you believe in tradition, possibly Mary of Magdala and even Mary the mother of Jesus, that tradition says spent years of their life in this town. There's a large amphitheater in the town. You see it. This is what it looks like today. This amphitheater played a prominent role as the backdrop of a tenth story from the book of Acts. You may want to read it later today. Acts chapter 19, a story that literally played out right there on those rocks. 
Alicia and I had the chance when we were in the seminary to travel to Ephesus as well as the sites of the other seven churches. And just as Alicia came out today and recited those words to the church of Ephesus, she stood on that stage and recited those same words. And we sang that same song all these years later after John wrote the message. Now, I've probably spent more time showing you pictures and telling you stories than I should, but I want you to realize that these messages are real messages to real people, not just mystical words thrown out there. But there's another point I want you to glean from this, and that's this. Candles don't always burn forever. No matter how bright they once shone, or how great the apostle was that lit them to begin with. There is much about the church of Ephesus that makes it prominent. Paul, Apollos, Priscilla, Aquila, John, and who knows who else. Multiple mentions in the book of Acts. A whole Bible book written to this church, the book of Ephesians. Yet today, if you walk the ruins of Ephesus, pretty much the only Christians you'll find are tourists just like you. Candles can go out. This is a very relevant message. What became of the church of Ephesus and it ought to be a solemn warning to us as well as we sit here in this room of significance and prosperity and look around ourselves as we stream our words to the entire world. The warning, don't mistake external success and activity for a brightly burning candle. And don't think when it comes to churches, there's no such thing as too big to fail. Times change. And sometimes candles flame out often before anybody even realizes the flame is gone. And so the work of the Lord moves on to another field. Ephesus would remain a prominent church for several hundred years, but everything about Ephesus would slowly begin to fade away even as its harbor began to silt up. And the city of Ephesus, which used to be a seaport, is now several miles from the coast. Can the same kind of thing happen to us? Well, do you have ears that hear? If so, listen. Revelation 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Now, I want to pause right there. I want to pause and I want you to appreciate what's being said here because this is genuine praise. The church in Ephesus was hardworking. The church in Ephesus was persevering. The church in Ephesus was intolerant of those who would destroy the community. Now, wait a minute. 
Uh, we're in this day where nobody's allowed to be intolerant, right? Well, I want you to read this and understand what's being said here because their intolerance of those who would destroy them is listed as praiseworthy. There is such thing as drawing lines to keep out those who would destroy. Now, if this stresses you and you're more of the kind to be wide open, okay, I concede the fact. Sometimes intolerance becomes exclusivity. Sometimes it goes too far. But there is a place for drawing lines. And there is a time for saying no more. And Ephesus is praised for it. But if you're one of those that worries that sometimes the lines are too narrow, okay, don't worry. We'll get to your church later on. The one that lets just about anybody in? Yeah, we'll get to that one. Ephesus is praised for being discerning for having tested the spirits and having remained theologically solid and sound and faithful. And then there's a repeat, a repeat of praise about perseverance and the endurance of hardship and a faithfulness to Jesus without growing weary. Wouldn't you love that to be a description of a reality of us? Don't you wish we were this faithful? And indeed, here, John twice uses a word we've learned before. He uses the form hupomonein, but it's, it's a form of the word hupomone. If you go back to the year uh, 2012, there it is. You'll see it. We used it in the Three Angels series. This is the exact same word that is used in Revelation 14, verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Remember this verse? Here are they who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Well, that's the word. Here is the patient endurance. Here is the hupomone. This is a marker word. This is one of the words that points out the good guys, the people whom hupomone are doing what God asks them to do. And Ephesus doesn't just get it once. They get it twice. There is so much about the application of the faith that Ephesus is doing right. But there's a problem. Verse 4, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You've lost your first love. If you understand the phrase and what is being said here, it's, it's actually rather terrifying because here's the implication. You can have everything looking and going great. Lots of activity, effective barriers against disruptions and heresies, significant numbers of people behaviorally faithful, and it can look great, and in fact, it can be great, but yet without realizing it, you can lose your love. The admonition continues and becomes quite unnerving. Verse 5, consider how far you have fallen Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Now, on the face of it, that kind of sounds like a punitive threat, doesn't it? But in truth, it seems to me that it's something else. It's rather Jesus just acknowledging a reality rather than him handing down some hard justice. 
So what is this height from which the Ephesians have fallen? I think we actually catch a glimpse of it in the letter that Paul writes to the Ephesians. For here's how they once were. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. This is some 30 years or so before, maybe even a little more. It says, for this reason, Paul writes, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. You see, there was a time when the Ephesians were not just famous for their faithfulness, they were also famous for their love. In another place, Paul once wrote, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And while it is awesome to still be famous for your faithfulness, as the church in Ephesus is by the time John writes, it's sad to think that the greatest of the three things that churches and believers ought to be known for has been lost somewhere along the way. Can the same thing happen in our day? Does the same thing happen in our day? Revelation 2, verse 5. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So here's the deal. Here's why I don't believe there's anything at all punitive in Jesus' words. Because when love dies... The candle goes out. And when the candle goes out, who has need of a candlestick? To take it away is just to tidy up. In fact, if a church has lost its love and its candle has gone out, would we even notice if someone took it away? So what? do the Ephesians need? I want to suggest that in the messages to all the churches, what they need most is found in the description of Jesus that comes at the beginning. And what they most want is promised to them if they have ears that hear. So based on this assumption, along with the diagnosis that they have lost their first love, what do the Ephesians need? Well, let's see how Jesus comes to the Ephesians. Revelation 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. You know, it seems that what's happened is in the midst of their faithfulness and their doing right and their figuring out what right is and establishing policy to make sure right is maintained and continuing the doing of right that they somehow lost sight of something. One, that Jesus is the leader. And two, that Jesus is literally walking in their midst. You see, here's what I think. The Ephesians need to see Jesus again. 
and remember that he's leading and that he's with them in their midst whenever they gather. And they need to realize that while faithfulness to the teaching and faithfulness in behavior and even perseverance are greatly to be desired and highly commendable, even if all these are present but love is lost, then what was once a glorious melody has become, as Paul says so well, little more than a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. The message to the church of Ephesus tells us this can happen even to good churches. Verse 6, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. My favorite professor from Adventist University of Health Science my wife, Alicia, <laughs> sums up the situation of the church in Ephesus very well, I think. She says, the Ephesians were very good at hating what God hates, but they weren't very good at loving what God loves. When a church finds more unity in what they are communally against than they find in what they are together for, it is, I believe, a sign that that church is dying. If we're more, re more united around what we hate than we are around what we love, that's a bad sign. So what can bring a church back to life? What do the Ephesians need most? Well, I believe it's nothing short of a resurrection. Revelation 2, verse 7, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. To receive the fruit from the tree of life is to gain life again. So let's bring it home to us as we close. Are we, the Forsyth Church, as famous for our love as we are famous for our faithfulness. I know most of you are very faithful in your lives. I experience your faithfulness. This church experiences your faithfulness. And I think we're famous for that faithfulness. Are we also famous for love? You see, Jesus walks in our midst every time we gather. And in Jesus is life, and he is standing by in the midst of the candlesticks, ready and able to make sure our candle keeps burning. 
Take our eyes off him for even a minute and we will begin to lose our love and our candle will flicker out and die. In this place where once love freely flowed and where the name of Jesus was uplifted, even this place could become a ruin just like Ephesus. But that doesn't have to be our future. Not if we keep our first love. I know for a fact that most of you are still faithful. But is your heart still bound to your first love? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that there would never be need to take our candlestick away because we would be a candle ever burning in faithfulness and love and that we would be famous for our perseverance but also famous for our loving kindness. Send your spirit in Jesus' name, amen.